I believe that Genesis 22 is one of the 10 most important chapters in the Bible. It's important because it's an example of complete faith in God. It's important because it illustrates God's amazing sacrificial love for us. And it's important because it really gives a a challenge to us to live this great adventure of faith. In the little book of James, it says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because it says that you, when you do that, you're going to receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The story we're looking at today in Genesis 22 is an example of one who persevered under trial. Now, in this series that we do wrap up today, we've seen Abraham and Sarah go through all kinds of ups and downs. It's, I think you'll agree, if you've been here for the whole series, it's been a roller coaster. But what a great adventure faith is. And we've seen all kinds of tests they've gone through. But there's been no greater test of faith than what Abraham faces today. He's instructed to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son of promise, on the altar. So I want us to follow this incredible story, verse by verse, in Genesis 22. And then I want us to draw uh, some illustrations and examples and applications for our own lives today. Verse 1 reads, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, if you're new to the faith or new to the Bible, the story we're about to read will freak you out. You're going to be wanting to call Child Protective Services. You're going to want to know, did, uh, what was Abraham thinking? You're going to have all kinds of wild thoughts. But I, I just want to try to calm you. You remember those things on TV we used to hear? I don't know if they still do them or not. You'd be in the middle of regular programming, and a voice would come on your TV. This is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is a test. It is only a test. And they're trying to give you a spoiler alert. Don't sweat it. This is only a test. Of course, the people involved didn't know that here. But it was only a test. A high school principal may choose to have a fire drill as a test. And people who don't know that it's just a drill may get anxiety from that. But she's not going to burn the building down. And although this is a strange request from God, God is performing a test of Abraham's faith, and he's not going to require him to actually sacrifice his son. But of course, Abraham doesn't know that at the time. We read on, he said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham must have been stunned. (laughs) I mean, come on. After all the years of waiting that he and Sarah had, finally God's promise is received and fulfilled. 
How could God ask this of him? He knew, by the way, that the nations around him, the pagan nations, practiced child sacrifice, but he knew that that was not the will of God. He must have thought, is God changing his mind, or has God lost it, or what? The wording here is very specific. Take your son, your only son whom you love. I I think that's important because Abraham had another son from his handmaid, Hagar, but Ishmael had been dismissed from the household earlier because of disciplinary reasons. Verse 1 says, sometime Later, I point that out to you because we honestly don't know what age Isaac was at this point. Scholars will say everything from maybe a a teenager all the way. Some scholars even suggest the age of 30 because there are so many parallels here, as we're going to see, between what Jesus Christ, our Lord, did for us as a young adult, as a 30 three-year-old, and what Abraham and Isaac go through here, and I'll point a lot of those things out. But here's what I want you to get now. Abraham and Isaac were close. There had been a period of time for them to grow, to love one another, to get to know one another deeply. They had no doubt hunted and fished together. They had no doubt talked about girls and teased about girls and laughed together. Abraham probably had private talks with his dad about his stepbrother, Ishmael, that he really didn't know all that well, apparently. And indeed, they had worshiped together and worked together. What an unreasonable command this seems. I would expect Abraham to say, no way, God, that's going too far. But verse 3 is amazing. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Do you have early the next morning faith? Do you have a faith that obeys God promptly and doesn't delay? That's one of the things that's so impressive here. He didn't say, well, God, let me think about this. I'll see if I really want to be fully consecrated to you and obey what you require, even when I don't understand it. No. He knew he could easily talk himself out of doing the will of God, like most of us can. And so early the next morning, he wasn't going to linger around and risk losing courage. You say, well, how could he possibly do that? Well, I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But right now, hang on. Let's follow the storyline. Verse 3 goes on. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now, this place is very interesting. And here we begin to see some of the amazing parallels to what Jesus did for us. And one of the things that makes this one of the ten most important chapters in Scripture Mount Moriah, this place where the sacrifice was going to be made, is the exact same place where centuries later a temple was built in Jerusalem and where there would be many 
thousands of animal sacrifices made to atone for sins. It was the very ridge of mountains where Jesus would later be crucified some 2,000 years after this. So this whole story is kind of a type or a prefiguring of what was going to come later through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. On the third day, verse 4 says, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. What do you think worship is? Normally, I think most of us, our first word association would be singing songs. Maybe receiving communion, perhaps giving an offering of some of our money. It might be praying some prayers or, or listening to a sermon. Worship, at its very heart, is giving the best that we have to God. That's what worship is. That's why Paul will write later in Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing God, this is your spiritual act of worship. So the purest form of worship is when we surrender our wills and all that we are to God. That's what true worship is. It's not just a duty. It's not just going through little acts or ordinances or habits. It is a radical act of surrender to God. Are you a worshiper today? Abraham said, look, we're going to go up there, we're going to worship, we're going to return to you. Was he lying? Was he just trying to buffalo those servants? Was he just trying to make sure they didn't, you know, sweat it too much? He said, look, we're going to go worship, then we'll come back. Was he lying? No, he wasn't lying. Although he knew what God had asked him to do, he had enough faith in God by this point to believe that even if his son were killed, God would somehow bring him back from the dead. In fact, there's a little passage in Hebrews 11, I think, that gives us some insight into what Abraham was thinking here. Look at what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, Abraham, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac your descendants shall be called. So, in other words, Isaac is crucial for this. And now God is requiring Isaac to be laid on an altar. But notice these words. This gives you insight into what Abraham was thinking. While the text in Genesis doesn't tell us this, the New Testament gives us a clue. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. From which he also received him back as a type. He thought God is going to make good on this somehow. Even if he dies, he's going to be raised back to life. Abraham's faith was that strong. By the way, you want another parallel? Just as Isaac was under the sentence of death for three days on their travel to Moriah, so Jesus was three days in the tomb as they waited for the resurrection. Verse 6 reads, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he, car he himself carried the fire and the knife. 
Another parallel, Jesus was going to carry the wood of the cross up the hill of Calvary. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now notice, Isaac is very familiar with worship and the elements of worship. He didn't say, hey, Dad, what's going on here? This is weird. Why are we carrying this firewood? You see, they had been there before. They were familiar. Isaac was familiar with worship. Let me ask you, when you, on the weekend, bring your kids together and say, hey, get in the car, we're about to go, do they have to ask, what is this about? Where are we going, or are they... Familiar? Do they know that worship with God's people, do they know that worship of the living God is a priority in your life? Or when your kids are troubled or going through some situation in their lives, do, uh, do they feel comfortable coming to you, mom, dad, and saying, hey, can we talk about this? Can we pray about this? Can we pray together? Or do they think that would be weird for you? or stress you out, or make you too uncomfortable. I, I'm, in, I'm impressed here that, that Isaac understands that his dad knows about worship. Isaac understands what is going on here. Talking about spiritual things was apparently common. Verse eight, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on Together Now, oh my, I wish we had a video of this in real time. I hope we can watch it in heaven one day. Abraham had to be choking back the tears. And yet he's still confident that God is going to come true and that his promise is going to be made good on. When they reached the place God had told him about, verse 9, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, again, keep in mind, most scholars would say that Isaac was at least a teenager at this point. So, in other words, he's probably physically stronger than his father, and yet he willingly goes along with this. He doesn't try to escape. Again, it's another incredible symbol of Jesus, the Son of God, who later would say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I go to the cross willingly. Isaac evidently permitted his father to tie him up and lay him on the altar. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I think his hand was trembling. I think he was pleading and sobbing. I think he was saying, God, please, please intercede. Please stop this. Never before had a loving father and an obedient son been put to such a test as this. Jesus would later say in Matthew's gospel, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, Abraham loved Isaac dearly, but he was proving that somehow, somehow he loved God even more. 
Abraham was then interrupted with an unexpected provision here in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Now, this repetition represents urgency. And never was there a more inter- welcome interruption to worship than this. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Now remember, Abraham had told Isaac, God himself will provide the sacrifice, son. And now he looks up, and there's a a ram in the thicket, this older sheep. And Abraham had been speaking prophetically when he said that. This ram was only a partial fulfillment of this prophetic word that Abraham gave. It would not be ultimately fulfilled until centuries later when John the Baptist came and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went over, verse 13, and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, and your Hebrew phrase here is really, really interesting, Jehovah-Jireh, translated here, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, for you Bible students who are really intense and want to learn God's word, let me tell you, this is the first place in the Bible that any mention is made of a substitute sacrifice. And just as this ram took Isaac's place, so centuries later, in a once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus Christ would take my place and your place on the cross as he died for us. What a test. This was. Abraham had passed the test, and then we see that God gave him this amazing, unequivocal promise of blessing. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. I'm certainly no astronomer, but I understand, I'm told and I've read that with the naked eye on a completely crystal clear night, you can see roughly two to 3,000 stars with the naked eye. How unscientific this must have seemed for centuries. Until now we know through the most powerful telescopes that there are not only multiplicities of multitudinous millions of stars, there are millions of galaxies. One professor, totally unaware of this passage, once said in a lecture that there may be as many stars in the universe as there are grains of sand on the Pacific Ocean, on the shoreline of the Pacific Ocean. God was promising to Abraham that there would be many descendants, and he wasn't just promising the Jewish nation, but it was a promise really to us who believe in Christ. 
Because as Paul says later in the book of Galatians, if you belong to Christ, listen, you are Abraham's seed. Are you a Christian today? Then you're Abraham's seed and you're heirs according to the promise. And you've been lumped in. You've been grafted into this promise that was given to Abraham. And I think as Abraham and Isaac walked off that mountain that day and returned home, I think they were the two most joyful worshipers you have ever seen in your life. And if the old hymn, Trust and Obey, had been written at that point, they would have been singing it with joy at the top of their lungs. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And then I love this stanza of that great old hymn. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. And the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Wow, what a story. What an incredible story. But the Bible wasn't written just to fill our heads with information, friends. It was written as a guidebook for life. It was written to change us from the inside out. So what in the world can we take away from an incredible story like this? I want us to look at just two simple lessons. I want to illustrate it, apply it, and then we'll be done, not just with this sermon, but with this wonderful series on the life of Abraham and Sarah. Here are the lessons. They're real simple. Maybe you want to write these words in right now. First lesson, your faith in God will be tested. Make no mistake about it. Young or old, if you're a brand new Christian, I want you to understand, and all the longtime followers of Jesus, trust me, they get this because they've been there, done that. They've got this T-shirt to show for it. Your faith in Christ will be tested. Second lesson, your faithfulness to God will be rewarded. Now let me take just a few minutes as we wrap up and unpack these for us and apply them. When you sign up for a college class, you know they're going to be tests, right? You don't automatically get your degree. You've got to pass the exams. And when you want to fly an airplane and get your pilot's license, you know there are going to be tests, right? There are going to be physical tests. There are going to be eyesight tests. There's going to be written tests that you have to take. There's going to be an actual flight test. You don't just automatically get your pilot's license. And listen, when you become a Christian, although you receive the gift of eternal life by faith, and it is a gift... If you're going to grow in that faith at all, you need to understand there will be tests, and you need to know the purpose of them. I heard about a Native American who saw a lighthouse for the first time. He'd never seen a lighthouse before. And he went back and reported to a friend what he had seen, and he said, white man not smart. Build tall stone building, bright light, Loud horn, fog still come in. White man not very smart to tell that joke either. <laughs> but it's important that we understand the purpose. 
And I want you today to get the purpose of the testing. It's not so you earn salvation. It's not so God can see if your faith is genuine. No, he already knows your heart completely. So there are a couple of purposes to the testing. First, it brings about maturity in your life. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If we're going to grow up in Christ, if we're going to become Christ-centered, as we say here at Grace Fellowship, and go from just kind of exploring Christ, being a new beginner in Christ, to close to Christ, and really a mature Christ-centered person, we are going to have to endure tests that will strengthen our spiritual muscles. A second purpose in the testing is to provide a positive testimony to others. Now listen to me very closely right now. When all is going well in your life, you're healthy physically, your financial portfolio is great, you have all you need and more, you live in a beautiful home, you've got a lovely family, your kids are all healthy, your spouse is gorgeous. You may give a verbal testimony to Jesus Christ, but I believe most people aren't gonna make much of that. They aren't gonna take it very seriously because here's why. They're gonna say, you know, if I had all that, I'd be a pretty happy camper too. But when your faith is tested and you still maintain your faith in God, hear me, your credibility in your testimony really grows. Bob Russell is a retired preacher. He's been sort of one of those heroes of the faith for me for many, many years now, way over two decades. He pastored a church in Louisville, Kentucky for 40 years. He tells a story that is really gripping to me. He tells about teaching a week-long class with a group of pastors, a group of ministers. The class was held at Kentucky Christian College, and there were 25 ministers in the class for this week-long session that, that Russell was leading. And um, they, they were all pastoring churches somewhere, and one of the guys in the class was a guy named Wayne Joslin, who was the pastor of a little church of roughly 40 people in Phelps, Kentucky. Phelps is a little town, in, a mining town in eastern Kentucky. And if you were if you were comparing the gifts of the guy in the class, listen, Wayne Joslin loves the Lord. He's faithful to Christ, but he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be one of the more gifted guys in this class of 25. And Pastor Russell had asked each of the men to bring a, a recording of a sermon he had preached so that they could kind of critique it together. Listen to it as a class, maybe just five minutes of it, but then just give some, some helpful critique. And even though that was kind of a stressful reality for these uh, preachers, uh, each of them brought a recording, either a DVD, a CD, or a tape of some kind. And their ages ranged from about 25 to 55. Well, next to the last day of class, Bob Russell, the teacher, pulled out one of Wayne Joslin's tape that he had brought. And he just put it into the player, and this, the class started listening 
And he told that he and his wife, when they had their first child, that after just a few weeks, their precious little girl passed away. And although they were heartbroken, uh, they went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you know, that probably is never going to happen again. This was very unusual. And so he and his wife, Nadine, uh, decided to have another baby, if possible. And after their next child, a boy was born, after a few months, they began to suspicion that something was terribly wrong with their child. And so they went to the doctor to have him checked and found out that their worst fears were confirmed. He was severely disabled, would not be able to walk, not be able to control his neck movements, would have to be strapped in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, and would not be able to communicate with them. The doctor said, this is really rare. And seriously, you, you shouldn't fear having another child just because of what has happened. And so they had another child, a little girl. And a few months after she was born, they took her to the doctor and found that, that she had the exact same problem. The tape had now gone on for five or six minutes. But Bob could tell that they were no longer listening to a tape to critique a sermon that the men were being ministered to through what Wayne Joslin was saying. So Bob let the tape keep running. He said that when our little girl was 12, she became sick, and we took her, took her to the doctor and then, then to the hospital, and we thought that she was the strong one, the one who would really make it, but with his voice quivering, he said, my little girl died. We were devastated. Bob could hear sniffles in the room at this point. He let the keep, tape keep playing. This was way beyond what anyone's message had ever played. But Wayne said that when my son was 18, he got pneumonia, and we took him to the doctor and then to the hospital, and the doctor said that a young man his age shouldn't die of pneumonia. But they put him on a respirator, and he was on that respirator, Wayne said, for an entire year. $500,000 of doctor bills that we just don't have the money for. And my son died. 15 minutes into the tape now. And then Wayne, whom his uh, classmates had heard laugh louder than anyone else in the class, said, although he'd been through all those trials, he then began to talk about how God had been faithful to he and his wife, Nadine, and why he still kept preaching God's love and God's grace in spite of all they had been through. And then Bob turned the tape off. And the whole class sat in stunned silence. Bob said, I tried to talk, but I couldn't talk. I left the room to try to compose myself. I went to the restroom, and I said, God, I don't have any problems. Here's a man who's been through the death of three children, two of them severely disabled, and I think it's a big test when I go to Africa for a few days and have to put up with some inconveniences on a short-term mission trip. Bob came back to the room after several minutes, and the men were kind of ministering to each other. 
And Bob could tell that their estimation of Wayne Joslin had gone up several notches. And then Bob said, men, I got to tell you, I teach, I teach this class because by God's grace, by God's grace, I get to preach at a large church. But the Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. And I want to grant you that this man, Wayne Joslin, is going to be leading the parade in heaven. And I'll have to wear a name tag. You see, when you go through a trial, a test, God's putting a spotlight on you. And he's inviting people to take a look. Is your faith genuine? And when it is and when it endures, your testimony is greatly enhanced. So your faith in God will be tested, dear brothers and sisters. Hear me, it will. And your faithfulness to God will be rewarded. And when you persevere under trial, oh, how it gives you credibility. And people say, If they can make it through that by God's grace, I need some of that myself. I need a God like that in my life. But I want you to know, just before we close here, that it won't just be directly from God that some of your tests will come. You need to know this. Scripture says that Satan tests us as well. Revelation 2.10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So some trials and tests come from Satan that God allows them to happen. And I don't know what yours will be. Maybe you'll have to go through some suffering like Wayne Joslin or like Abraham or like Job in the Old Testament. I don't know. But your faithfulness to God will be rewarded. One final thought. Your greatest test may come through prosperity. (laughs) You know, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Thomas Carlyle, the great English essayist, said for every person... You show me who can handle prosperity, I'll show you a hundred who can handle adversity. Prosperity is the hardest test of all for many. There's something about success that drags people away from God. I mean, think about it. Think about the Bible characters who did totally fine going through hardships and adversity, but they couldn't stand the test of success. King Saul, King David, King Solomon... Samson, just to name a few. And friend, when your stock goes up, hear me, when your name is in the headlines, when you become big man on campus, when your stock starts soaring and your bank account grows, that's a prime test of your loyalty to God. Can you still put him first? Can you still be generous? Can you still practice selflessness? Can you still be humble even when you're getting applause? In my experience, 
In my observation, not many people can climb the ladder of success and still keep their spiritual equilibrium. Your faith in God will be tested. Boy, if there's anything this series on Abraham and Sarah teaches us, it's that, right? We've seen it over and over and over again. But be encouraged, saints. Be encouraged. Your faithfulness to God will be enormously rewarded. And when you have stood that test, you will receive the crown of life that God promises to those who love him. Father, this series has been amazing as we've seen the roller coaster ride of faith. Oh, how exhilarating to follow you. I thank you that following Christ is not a dull life. I thank you that it's filled with twists and turns and open doors of opportunity and hard crises that test us and see what we're made of. Lord, I pray for all of us who would have ears to hear that we'd be able to hold on to you even when our faith is tested. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.